welcome to That's Absurd. Please elaborate the lightly science, mostly goofy podcast where we take silly questions and do our very best to find the real hard science answers. I am a host, Julian Huguet. I am another host, Trace Dominguez, and we have a guest here with us today. Another host, science communication <laughs> dabbler. He's a writer and producer for Practical Engineering. He's got a biology background, and you may have seen him uh, hosting planetarium presentations for over a decade. So really, all sorts of different kinds of science rolled together in one man. It's Ralph Crew. Welcome, Ralph. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. What hello. an intro. What an intro. That's the best intro I've had all day. He Thank could you. have maybe even sold a house to you. <laughs> That's actually also true. In the early, mid-2000s, I did sell houses. Oh, you know what? Actually, my, my uh, question answer involves a teeny tiny bit about buildings and real estate. Ooh, good wow. tease. Good tease. I'm intrigued. I want to listen to what's coming next. <laughs> so as we mentioned, this is a show where we take questions from listeners, from each other, from guests, and we do our very best to answer them. The sillier, the more ridiculous, the more absurd, the better. Uh, and kicking us off this week is Trace. Trace, what was your question? So my question comes from this person. His name is Julian, I think. Uh, yeah, Julian. Oh, Huget. is he Swedish? Uh, he sounds sexy. <laughs> he, he he is. You know, some people would say he is. <laughs> some um, people would say. Some people would say he's Swedish, or some people would say he's sexy. You didn't commit. Yes, <laughs> you have to commit. <laughs> which is it, Trace? <laughs> Is Julian Huget sexy or, and or Swedish? <laughs> yes. Yes. And or. You gave me an out. You said and or. Um, Julian, you asked this question. You put it in our questions database. By the way, listener, if you want to submit a question, go to thatsabsurdshow.com slash ask or look in the show notes. Of Just this for episode. the record, I'm not Swedish. So therefore, by process of elimination, I must be sexy. No, no <laughs> challenges for me that's how it works out i like that ralph is just sitting there <laughs> smirking at us I, well i was trying to come up with a stockholm syndrome joke but i just couldn't get, i couldn't get there because i kept on being distracted by the sexiness. The longer i keep you trapped here the sexier i become is <laughs> that's the stockholm syndrome with me that is stockholm syndrome you just described it that's it yeah oh, there we go awful. We finally got there. Um, so this question comes from Julian, and we haven't used a question from each other in a while, so this is a fun a fun change. We've got a lot of listener questions, and we love them. We've got a lot more to get to, so lots of podcasts to make. But Julian, you asked, are there any other systems of timekeeping besides hours slash minutes slash seconds? Yes. I mean, first of all, I, I despise working with like standard quote unquote units of measurement, right? Like the 12 inches, the 5,280 feet in a mile. Like, I just hate it. I do a lot of like tinkering and working and like building and stuff in my free time. And every time I have to use like fractions of an inch, I just, I cry inside and I, I much prefer working in metric. And, you know, it struck me that we've got such a beautiful elegant system that's based on, you know, base 10 with metric for just about everything except for time. Time is still all all wonky yeah. and uses 24-hour days and 
60 second minutes and 60 minute hours and 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 i don't like it and i've wondered if anybody at some point has pointed at each other probably the french because the french you know are the people who were in charge like the standard units and measurements right were all devised by like french people 200 years ago but do you think they ever went like mon dieu this 12 hour day is absurd I, you know, I've checked the data. I feel like they, they still do that. <laughs> what is life if we must live by this 24 hours? If we must the, abide by this The clock. tyranny of the clock. <clears throat> I would cut off its head and spite its face. Ralph, the more ridiculous I, accents you can do on this podcast, the better it's going to be for you. I, okay, okay. I got to work on I mean, I, by the way, that French accent you just did, that was, was that the Little Mermaid? <laughs> the the guy? <laughs> the the witch guy. the lip song guy I think so I I mean I just you know actually you'd think I'd be I was I was born in Quebec oh. in Canada, so I should be able to do a French accent you should but I also feel like <laughs> it's extra bad yeah. if I do so um, you could just speak French really uh, un petit peu mais je suis très bête I mean that's already no, I better than I what cannot we did. my I, I, uh, yeah no I cannot speak <laughs> I've checked the data I don't think well, we have any listeners in France so for now we're safe oh. <laughs> from well, France is not the only place that they speak French I mean that's as a true. hockey fan right yeah. you've got Quebec you've got French Guiana yeah. all of Canada you've got yeah yeah Cameroon probably yeah. <laughs> Morocco Haiti. Haiti the Ivory Coast so Julian you nailed it on a couple of different levels so I want to I want to give you props for that the French did come up with a metric time it's actually called decimal time uh, I'm going to get there in a minute but let's talk a bit about where time comes from and and a little bit about how we got to this weird 24 hour 12 hour you know 60 minute 60 second situation mm-hmm. before we do that though i need you both to do something for me ready you're going to close your eyes and when i say go i want you to count to 10 in your head and get as close to 10 seconds as possible oh and then when you get to 10 open your eyes and say that's absurd okay. please elaborate hold on okay Siri, ready? set a timer for 10 seconds no you can't cheat <laughs> You can't cheat. That's the point. Ready? You didn't say no cheating at the beginning. Okay, well, here we go. I'm going to say go. Ready? Go. That's absurd. Please elaborate. That's absurd. Please elaborate. Did my phone alarm go off or no? (laughs) I did hear your phone alarm go off, you cheater. I think I keep perfect time. I I feel like I was slow. I feel like I was a bit behind there. So neither of you did well, but that's fine. It doesn't really matter. Well, I started from when Siri started. It's her fault. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) The point is, if we played that over and over again, do you think you would do better or worse each time? Do you think the variance would just go wild? Like, what what do you think? I think I'd get better for a while, and then I would devolve into an, an, an altered mental state where I'd been trying to count to 10 too many times and i'd get get kind of off yeah i i think it would be just a total scatter plot of like no correlation between performance and like how many actual reps we did i think i'd be all over the place if i did it in earnest repeatedly well i mean i think i would never be longer than an hour or less than a second <laughs> you'd be you'd be within a, a variance of a few yeah, of a few seconds of 10 yeah, within an order of magnitude at, at, right. at least. Sure. And my, my point with this game is 
that time doesn't exist. And so we are trying to calculate something and to break down this 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 stream of consciousness, this stream of the universe, if you will, into something that makes sense to us, which means the second is just sort of invented, as is the minute and the hour and everything else. There are some things, though, that we can objectively measure. So let's do a kind of quick and dirty history of time. So ancient people, you know, they would see the sun rise and set, easy to measure, always happening over and over again, and it's happened since forever. And so that is where the day came from. Probably the first measure of time was something like that. Hey, it's been a day. Okay, cool. A year, also important, easy-ish to measure. You know, if you live long enough, (laughs) you can measure that over time. You get the same seasons over and over again. You get repeating events that happen. But to really calculate it, and I think Ralph is going to nerd out a little bit about this. What do we need, Ralph? Uh, in order to calculate the length of a year? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would probably be measuring the length of the day and mm-hmm. then uh, and then see when, you know, because like we have a shortest day of the year every year on Correct. the same day. So yes. I would probably measure solstice to solstice, which Ooh. as of this recording, boy, we're close to a solstice. Yeah, too. we I'm are. very excited yeah. about it. Uh, oh, right. We should probably add to our intro that this is... Uh, a New Year episode. Oh yeah! Happy New Year. Time Forgot has no meaning. <laughs> yeah. Happy New Year. This one will air on January fourth. So anyway, yeah, I, that is a, exactly right. Ancient people would measure the year based on solstices, but also based on star movements and how mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. would change in the sky. Again, objective measures that things that happen year over year. The ancient Chinese would use a combination of the solar calendar, which is when solstices would happen. But also, I think something that we forget about is the lunar calendar, which yeah. is that moon is changing phases constantly and we can see it. So people would measure from new moon to new moon again. Early on, Egyptians had a 360 and then kind of tweaked it and got a 365 day calendar following the sun and the stars and literally saying, okay, Sirius, the dog star, which they had a different name for, um, they would say, oh, that's in the same place this year and next year and the year after that. So we will be able to measure how long it's been since that happened by counting the number of days in between. The Central American Olmec and Maya, they had accurate calendars to 365 days as well. And then the Romans come along and are like, okay, we've seen how the, you know, the Greeks first and then the Romans, they were like, okay, the Egyptians had this really good calendar. Let's see if we can improve on it. And they realized, okay, it's probably actually 365 days and a quarter. They yeah. are already figured that out yeah um, and that was the julian calendar just correct. That out there. there's there's no way it's a coincidence that we're here talking about the julian calendar <laughs> yeah I so mean, the julian calendar i think let me double check it I was named it for julius caesar i think the senate named it in honor of him you yeah. know before i think a year later then they all then they all knifed him in the back <laughs> so <laughs> yes the julian like, calendar has julian the- also we're gonna march uh, Mark March 15th on there. Just, you know, no reason. <laughs> In uh, ancient Rome, the spot where Julius was murdered has flowers on it to this day. There's like flowers left there. Wow. In, in the ruins of ancient Rome. From like wow. some secret admirers like coming along and leaving. People who are like, yeah, he was a big deal. We like ah, him. Miss him. Miss that yeah. guy. 
miss him what he was so nice he was really friendly to my kid so the point is yes the julian calendar we had 365 and a quarter it still could use improvement of course you know it's actually 365.2545 blah 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 blah. and then that was the gregorian calendar which we now use where they realized oh if we skip leap years in day or in years that end in centuries essentially zeros then you can kind of stay accurate to within yeah it's a ridiculous amount of accuracy that's fine except every four centuries right right like it's every four years in 2000 or no 2000 we did not leap year even though it should have been an unleap unleap leap year right yeah but 2100 we will not have a leap year but this year is a leap year yay Yay. 2024 happy leap year my anniversary is on Leap Day. So is this will be really? your first yeah. anniversary. It will. It will. My, oh, wow. wife, my wife is going to be in the Galapagos Islands for our first anniversary four years after we got married. So we're spending Honestly, our, that sounds awesome. I, sounds I mean, great incredible. for her, but I'm just going to be here like... You should totally dress up as a tortoise and surprise <gasps> her. Go surprise her there. Okay, so we've got the Julian calendar, we've got the Gregorian calendar. Those are like wide views that we can base on observing the stars and the planets and the sun and the moon and everything else. Also seasons, the Nile would flood in North Africa seasonally. Um, Northern China, they would measure things like the awakening of insects and be like, okay, well, that's, that happened on this day. And they would send these calendars all over their you know regions to say, this is important. You know when to plant, you know when to do all this stuff. Tracking that for harvests and seasonal changes is part of modernization of society. However, when it comes down to like subdividing a day into time, that has a lot less importance for a mod- for like a regular agrarian society. Do you really need to know the difference between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. just in ancient time? Not necessarily. That said, there are times when it's important. And so the ancient Sumerians and then Egyptians did come up with this, where you would divide time based on day and night originally and then slowly by measuring stars and constellations they divided it into smaller chunks and they used base 60 which is (laughs) weird right base 60 is a weird thing we use base 10 for metric okay and it makes total sense right you have 10 fingers you can count to 10 easily it's easy to move the decimal points you get a lot of zeros in there the thing with base 10 is it's divisible by two five or ten for an integer. Base 60 is divisible by 2, 3, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, and 30. So it's actually a better system in some ways, depending on what you're trying to do with it. And this is many thousands of years old. So when the Sumerians came up with it, or so some researchers think, they did it because it was two groups that came together and one used base 5 for your five fingers Mm. and the other used (laughs) base 12. And the common language between the two would be base 60. 60. And so the Sumerians came up with it. Now, if you're wondering... Who the heck would try and make base 60 the basis of your mathematics? So I found a USA Today piece who referred to a theory from researchers at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. If you are going to count to five, that's easy. You have five fingers, you know, one, two, three, four, five. You're mm-hmm. going to count to 12. Any idea of how you would do that without writing it down or a calculator? Uh, 10 fingers and two <laughs> nostrils. <laughs> When you put, you get to ten, and then you stick each index finger in a nostril, <laughs> and you, and then it's twelve. Twelve, and then you start again. That you just walk to into it. a place, and you're like, I need a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> give me, give me this many with your fingers. I need them. one dozen takes place. <laughs> Clearly, that's it. 
<laughs> Sorry, Ralph. Go ahead. Yeah, Ralph. What's no, your I idea? No, I think that must be that. Obviously, is the right answer, right? <laughs> it's going to be something so obvious when he says it. Like, what? What could it be? What is it, Trace? Count the number of segments in your fingers, oh! not the number of fingers. So if you hold up your hand and look mm-hmm. at it, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Not counting the thumb of segments in your four fingers. Now, if you want to count to twelve, that's pretty easy. If you do that, now if you're trying to keep track of numbers, you can be like, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Got it. Okay. Now, if you want to count to 60, because it is divisible by 12, you use your other hand. Wow. Point with your pointer finger. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Put your pointer finger down. Start with your next finger. Seven, and then you just keep going, and you can get to a number in between using two of your hands. You'll know exactly what number you're counting to, because you're keeping track of base 12 on your way to get to 60. It's so interesting to think about and it does sort of like blow my mind when i read it who is the person the first person to be like hey we're really limited by our 10 fingers that we're counting on but i have devised a brilliant way to get to at least 60 i think it was somebody who owned more than 10 chickens or something (laughs) that's it that's (laughs) probably exactly the problem they had it's like like i I need to sell this large number of chickens but I don't have enough fingers to do the math. How do I track them? And you yeah. said, well, it's three fingers of my right hand and, you know, eight segments. So I know I have X number of chickens. So it's it's an easy way to count using two hands and just the segments of one hand and the fingers on another. It's, it's so clever. Um, and that was, they think, why they used base 60. So even today, though, it's very confusing to us to think about the number of minutes and seconds as this base 60 number. For them, it was fine. And 12 goes into 60 very easily. So the number of hours or segments of a day was 12. Egyptians and Sumerians used 24-hour time. It was 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. And at different times of year, those hours would be of different lengths. They didn't necessarily need to be like exact numbers throughout the day or the year. It was just like, oh, the hour is generally throughout the day. And they would use sundials and water clocks throughout history to measure this. And that's when things started to get more and more and more precise. Also a combination of the lunar calendar and the solar calendar. So as we started to put all this together, we got... All these different time systems, which is the answer to your question, Julian, that yes, there were different time systems. We all use the Sumerian Egyptian system today, but that was not the only system out there. So even though it doesn't always make sense, I'm going to tell you some of the other ones and they make almost less sense, okay, but are still important to the various cultures that came up with them. So China and Japan had one day divided into 12 Gs. And then the Gs were divided further into Kaos or Kis. I'm not really sure. Anyway, it was translated as marks into English. And marks would actually vary. The number of marks would sometimes be about 96 in a day, sometimes 120 in a day. (laughs) Different emperors would have different interests in dividing the day differently. So if we used 100, then each mark would be about 14 and a half minutes roughly, yeah, 14.24 minutes. And then the key or marks were subdivided again into fen, and the number of fen also varied. It could be in the hundreds or the thousands. So later they divided the xis into another division. So they had 12 xis, 
and they had the initial G and the central G, which were two different versions of it. Basically, they divided then into 24-hour hours. Okay. Yeah. But backing up a little bit, you so you said specific rulers could change the values of time? Yes. Like when they came to power for whatever reason? Yes. I'm just like... I hate, like, moving. I'm in the middle of a move, and I hate having to gather all my crap up and put it somewhere else and arrange it and then know that in two years I'm going to do it all over again. Can you imagine having to relearn timekeeping because some emperor came to power and then, like, they get assassinated two years later and you're like, oh, we have to do a completely different (laughs) unit of time? What a nightmare. What a nightmare that would be. Exactly. And it was. It was very confusing. They also had sundials and water clocks, and it was based on, like, the latitude of whatever the uh, forbidden city was. You know, so China, even to this day, uses one time zone, which is wild. So it's just... But if you think of it as, like, a 12-unit day with 24 subunits, 100 different marks within those subunits, then 8.30 a.m., as we call it, would be 35.42 key, or 4G, depending on how specific you want it to be. (laughs) Of Uh, course. And then... At exactly 36 key or mark, there would be that would be about 8.30, 8.40 in the morning. And 9 a.m. is like 4.25 G or 37.5 marks. So, you know, and uh, to make it even more confusing, sometimes depending on whether you're... Sometimes the sheet didn't start at midnight. They started at 11 p.m. the previous day, depending on when you're looking at throughout the history of China. So it's it's a very complicated system. The thing is, you don't necessarily need it to live your day-to-day life, right? The day is the most important thing. You're going to meet in the morning. You're going to meet in the midday, the afternoon. And that ever-changing system was fixed in the 17th century where they divided the day into 100 marks. Right. And then they adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1929 and everybody was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, It's over. 100 feels kind of metric, doesn't it? It does feel kind of metric, yeah. So this is that's ancient China. In Japan, they also had that system, but they used it slightly differently, and it's still very complicated. But they also adopted the Gregorian calendar at some point in the uh, 20th century. So in ancient India, they had a completely different system, and I'm going to try and pronounce the words. I'm going to get them not correct, but they had the Ahura train to, which is the time of one day and a night. So essentially 24 hours in modern hours, but they didn't use those. And they divided that Ahura train to into 30 Mahurta, which is 30 segments. They divided those 30 segments into 30 Kala, and that would be what would we would call a minute. And then they subdivided those Kala further to include rates based on human biology. So they had the Aksara, which is a syllable, the Namesa, which is an eye wink or blink. And then they had the Pranaasu, Prana or Asu, rather, which is the breath or pulse rate. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it was a day with 30 hours, allegedly, then 30 minutes, uh, and then they would subdivide those minutes into smaller pieces. Gotcha. And to translate that into modern time, 30 hours of 48 minutes and 30 minutes of 96 seconds is sort of how to, how to think I about see, it. I see. Okay, so their 30 minutes was equivalent to like 48 of our minutes, basically. Each of their hours is equivalent to 48 of our minutes. Gotcha. Yes. Right. Yeah. So... 
you know, similar. The Catholic missionaries that showed up in the 16th century introduced the Gregorian calendar. And then in the 18th century, when the Brits took over the country, they imposed the Gregorian calendar upon them. They Mm -hmm. still, both China, all China, Japan, and India use their original traditional calendars as well for measuring festivals. That's pretty common. But everybody's now using the Gregorian calendar for, you know, calendar years. It's interesting that we have so many like different starting points for timekeeping and the world more or less is all kind of on the same one. And I bet it all pretty much has to do with conquest and commerce, basically. Yes. Yeah. 100% conquest and commerce. And then after the conquest has rolled back in the case of India, you know, the Brits left, Mm -hmm. they stuck with it because, again, commerce. It's so much easier to trade if you're all using the same time. India, I believe, also just has one time zone. And the time zones we're not even going to get into because that's its own crazy stuff. But that comes into play later once, you know, everybody's using the same time. We realize it got even more complex. Right. Um, But I did want to get into the ancient Maya because we talk about ancient China and ancient India a lot. But the ancient Maya also had a calendar. You've heard of it because if remember in 2012, everyone thought the world was going to end. Oh, yeah. Did uh, that that ever was happen? the Mayan New Year, essentially. But it wasn't. It was just the end of one Baktun in the Mayan calendar. The 13th Baktun, actually. Oh, happy Baktun, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Happy oh. Baktun to you. So Mayan time is based on days. Each day is called a kin, and every 20 days is a yuinol, and every 360 days is a tun, and every 7,200 days is a katun, and every 144,000 days is a baktun. At the end of the world, again, it was the 13th baktun. And then there's the long count cycle of 5,126 solar years. Uh, And so they had this whole calendar figured out and knew that, there were more than 360 days in a solar year and they would just like add those days on when they needed them, Um, which is amazing. And then they also have a universal cycle, which is 2,880,000 days. So they just counted the number of days from when they started counting and never stopped counting and they made a calendar that way. They're just like, okay, cool. We just kept counting days. Well, I bet the guy who wrote uh, that song from Rent where they count how many minutes there are in a year was glad <laughs> that we didn't use my entire... <laughs> <laughs> how many seconds are there in a Bach tune? Yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> Eight quadrillion, 295 billion. <laughs> how do you measure... Measure a Bach tune. <laughs> and the Mayan priest is like, we measure it with this giant stone this round. Wheel. I've got it, right? I don't understand. The song makes no sense. <laughs> you can't measure in love. What are you talking We measure in tune. And cartoon. And we Bach have a tune. wheel system. <laughs> The cool thing about the Maya is that they started counting and just kept counting. So if you go to their first day, it was August 11th in the year 3114 BCE. And from then, that's day day one, and they just kept counting. From can you then. imagine? Can you imagine if a thousand years from now somebody discovered like a stack of of old calendars from our time, just like puppy calendars or sexy fireman calendars, right? And like that for some reason they'd printed like a thousand years into the future, and then just stopped printing because they're like, we're not going to need sexy puppy cal oh sexy fireman. <laughs> <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> We're not going to need calendars of puppies and speedos. We don't need that. But like they just stopped printing them. And then whoever found them was like, oh, my goodness, the the ancients stopped. Their calendar stopped. Therefore, the world will end. (laughs) That's the conclusion you draw from it. 
my in-laws have one of those like far side calendars where you pull off every day and like you yeah. just get to the end of it and that's it yeah no oh, that, that must mean they predicted the end of the world like what a leap what a logical Amazing. leap that took wow <laughs> trace you don't want that sexy puppy calendar i got you for christmas no please just keep that i'll you take it back it. i'll take it back. yeah thank you <laughs> So obviously we don't know what the Maya would have done had they continued because they were destroyed by the European settlers. But China, Japan, India, and basically everyone at this point used the Gregorian system. And the reason they do that is because, as you said, some conquests, some commerce, but also it was the most accurate. It was the Mm. most accurate calendar. Everybody adopted it because it's the evolution of these ancient peoples in the Middle East who figured it all out. They subdivided their day based on their base 60 system. And we just use it because the Sumerians and Babylonians and ancient Egyptians used it. And astronomers and researchers and scientists over millennia continued to use it. And so we just do. But if we didn't, we might use decimal time, which was attempted in the 1790s in France. Yes, it was the French! I knew it! I knew the French would try that. They used it for 16 months, and then we're like, no, (laughs) we will not be doing this. Or (laughs) 1.5 decamons. (laughs) (laughs) I think it might have been decims. I looked it up. I don't know. Anyway, so think of it as base 10 metric time. So a day has 10 hours. Each hour has 100 minutes, and each minute has 100 seconds. So each day has 100,000 seconds in it all right so noon is five midnight is 10 or zero depending on how you think about it and a minute would be equivalent to 1.44 normal minutes like babylonian or sumerian minutes a second would be 0.864 what freedom seconds i don't know whatever we want to call whatever whatever term we want to use the cool thing about decimal time is just like metric all time is easily divisible by moving the decimal you just have to remember to switch from uh hours to minutes so you move it two decimal points to go from hours to minutes but otherwise you just move one so let's say one two three four five six so one point two three four five six it could represent time it would be one day and so many hours so many minutes and so many seconds which we still use in computers right you still have like d capital m capital m capital h capital h you know so on and so forth when you're doing like time for computing because it's really just counting seconds so if you have 123,456 seconds then in decimal time that's 1234.56 minutes that's 12.3456 hours that's 1.23456 days because it's all translatable which is kind of cool uh, Do you but know, again, not why easy. did why yeah why if did they so cool, why did they get rid of it? Because it sucks to use. Uh, <laughs> it's just like not easy to use. They also tried ten months in a year of only three hundred and sixty days. So each day would be there'd be three weeks in a month, ten day weeks, ten months a year, which adds up to three hundred and sixty days. And the other five days were called supplementary days. And knowing mm. France, that probably means it was a holiday, but it's yeah, hard to say. Lunch. It turns out it's just really hard to not continue to use the time that we have been using. We've used it for thousands of years. And so just switching to like these weird hours that are longer and like longer weeks, it it was just it was arduous. And so they 16 months in, they were just like, this is not great. Let's cancel it. When it came down to it, a lot of it is 
it's it's cultural, it's historical. We've just continued to use this system and slowly refined it over time. I've said time a lot. Over time. <laughs> um, but time isn't really real outside of the solar year is real, like we can measure it. The day is real. We can measure it. But minutes and seconds and hours, that's we made that up. That is totally made up. And so we just keep using it because we kept perfecting it. It kept working. Okay. And so metric time, we've tried it. The the French tried it. And even though they've made all these lovely changes to create the metric system that's been so useful on time, they were like, you know what? This is this is bogus. Yeah. We're ditching this. It was just hard to get everyone to move to literally new clocks, longer minutes, longer hours, longer weeks, fewer weeks in a month. Mm. Like it was just it's people were like, this is this this is lame or whatever Mm. that is in French. They were just like, merd. You know, <laughs> that's probably it. Are we going to have to beep that? I don't know. That's a great do question. Do you? Do, I don't think we do. Only if the podcast goes out in any of those French speaking territories. <laughs> Only in Algeria. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do think, interestingly, we still do essentially today what the Mayas did, which is at some point we turned on atomic clocks mm-hmm. and we just have to keep counting the day, the, the number of vibrations constantly. And we can't ever miss one or time will be off because we use atomic clocks as the standard measure of time now, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. So we've got all these atomic clocks. And if you stop counting for even one vibration of a cesium atom, you've messed up because we've mm. made time exactly these number of vibrations right. it's like whatever nine billion one hundred and ninety two million something and so like every time a cesium atom vibrates that many times it's like okay that's one second but we just have to watch forever just like the maya did. we have to watch oh oh, oh that's so, a pretty oh, wow. good catch wow Nice. Uh, nice. So yeah, the answer to your question, yes, there were other timekeeping systems. They were complicated, just like ours is. But ours was pretty accurate, so we continue to use it. Thanks, ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, and everybody else who still uses it. Thanks. Um, mostly, I'm just going to try the base 60 counting system now on my fingers. That was the biggest revelation for me. Yeah. If I can ever get over 10 chickens, I'm definitely switching to that. <laughs> <laughs> If you've turned into this, turned into it, you've <laughs> turned you, into one. You've turned into a science comedy podcast. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I'm a podcast. Am I going to be late to work? If you're tuned into this science and comedy podcast, chances are that you are someone who loves learning and having a blast while doing it. If it wasn't clear, Trace and I are the same way. We thrive on learning new things because it not only enriches our lives, helps us learn new skills, but also makes us really cool at parties. Is that what we are at parties? Are we? We are, right? We're cool. I mean, when you're at my house and I'm at your house, definitely, but like, oh. Uh, other houses. Anyway, <laughs> this is all to say I am super excited about our new sponsor, Brilliant. Yay. Can I kind of get a little like, you know, in my feels for a second? Oh, yeah. Get those feels. Elaborate, please. Hey, I see what you did there. I am exactly the kind of person that Brilliant was made for. I have always been interested in math, physics, computer science. When I had the chance to study these things in college years ago, I was also really intimidated by them. Yeah. And I avoided taking these classes. And honestly, I regret it. I'm going back now. I'm taking classes at my local community college. I'm loving it. Yeah. 
but with a family and work, traditional classes like that, I'm finding them really hard to actually fit into my life. So I was really excited when you told me that Brilliant was going to be a sponsor. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, by the way, out there. It's an interactive learning platform with so many lessons on topics that I always wanted to explore, and I can do them at my own pace, on my schedule, and in a way that keeps me engaged. You can learn by doing on their website or with their mobile apps, and there are thousands of different interactive lessons in STEM subjects all across the platform. Their lessons are engaging and interactive. You can brush up on like algebra or advanced math, multivariable calculus, differential equations, computer science, Python programming. You can even learn about cutting edge stuff like large language models, neural networks, the things that are powering AI today. Large language models, really be great now. <laughs> large language models. You can learn large language models. <laughs> <laughs> it's only Gaelic, though. The large language that you can learn is Gaelic. Yeah, ship that. I'm in. We can finally communicate with the Scots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway. Wherever you are in your learning journey, there is a brilliant course that will help you get to the next level. Or, you know, just be basic enough to get you an understanding that you can go and work with. Yeah, they're always adding new courses too. They just launched a ton of lessons focused on analyzing data. That's cool. That's really cool. I think the world would be a better place if everyone had to take a stats class. Oh, totally. And if you haven't taken one, here's your chance. You could just go take a statistics class and make Julian so, so happy. I would appreciate that. Try it out. You can try Brilliant for free for 30 days. Just visit brilliant.org slash absurd or click the link in the show notes. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash absurd. When you sign up, you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription and it supports the show, even just trying it out. So go ahead Check it out. Maybe get sucked into a few lessons. Trace and I are going to be here with the rest of the episode when you get back. If you get back. Oh, I hope you get back. They come back and they know more than us about everything. <laughs> They're just like, these guys are idiots. <laughs> their brains are the size. This huge brain coming out of their cranium. I've absorbed all knowledge. Why do I listen to this podcast of dummies? I have no time for your absurd antics. <laughs> But I would definitely take one on large language models. <laughs> a cool. Scottish AI robot that nobody can understand. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> turn on the lights. Sorry. <laughs> I'm the burglar alarm. <laughs> it supports the show. It'll be great. <laughs> Welcome back to That's Absurd. Please elaborate if you're just tuning in. Uh, I don't know why that would be in a podcast if you accidentally fast forwarded. Um, this is a show where we answer ridiculous questions. <laughs> <laughs> with lots of science research. I'm your host, Trace. We're also hosted with Julian and Ralph, our guest today. And up next with his question from a listener is Ralph. Ralph, before I play the listener audio, do you want to introduce us to this question? What do we got? So the question that we've got is, uh, this was such an interesting question to me. It is, can we evolve or engineer ourselves to breathe continuously? All right, let's play, let's play our audio from our listener. Hi, Trace and Julian. My name is Henry from Singapore. My question is, can we ever develop a way to breathe continuously? That is, can we ever develop a second mouth or something that allows us to breathe out while our previous mouth breathes in? So we have continuous oxygen exchange. I thought it would help us develop our muscles much better and make us become a stronger species. Hope you guys had fun with this one. Yeah. 
So oh boy, right? Julian's face when he was when oh, Henry was. I know when I first saw the question. You know, I, I saw the question, and then that sort of elaboration, that audio. First of all, Henry from Singapore, thank you for asking such a thoughtful question. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. So in order to answer this, uh, we have to go way back, many Bakhtuns, uh, <laughs> to the evolution of breathing in the first place so like i want to in order to attack this question i think we need to take a minute to just sort of understand what is breathing in the first place and it's something that essentially all animals do so like i i I went deep on this one i I dug back uh i'm looking like okay so all animals breathe uh, uh but that's actually not exactly true i found an exception this is very strange so well wouldn't anaerobic yeah so you've heard of anaerobic bacteria perhaps right or maybe an anaerobic fungus or something like that but you never think of animals as not needing you know to 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 get oxygen somehow right to to, to do just like a turtle out there that's just like i'm born (gasps) (laughs) no turtles all turtles i can say definitively are aerobic respirators 100 (laughs) percent of turtles not publicly respirating i can say for sure you are also not a living turtle. Um, <laughs> there is a strange animal, though. It's called Henagaya jockeyi, and I uh, that is n- almost certainly Perfect. how you actually it. say it. Um, <laughs> it is a, a cnidarian, so that's the same uh, phylum that includes things like jellyfish and coral. Um, anemones, that kind of thing. It's a very, very, very small cnidarian. It's actually a parasite. It will infect salmon and things like that. And it, because it's a parasite, and this sort of thing happens in parasites kind of a lot, it has evolved to have less and less complex systems in it, including getting rid of its own mitochondria. I know. Huh? Yeah. Oh. The powerhouse of the cell? Correct. Oh. <laughs> It's really, really weird. It doesn't have mitochondria. And actually, the biologists who've uh, studied and described it have this really bizarre... So how could that evolve? Like, uh, the other cnidarians all have mitochondria. They do some level of aerobic respiration. So how could this one do it? And they actually think the origin of this this bizarre parasite is that it started out as a cancerous tumor in, like, an ancient jellyfish and escaped oh. and lives on its own. What? So it's like that it, is a great horror movie concept. It is, there's the the theory for this kind of origin of species, you know, of a new species is called speciation by cancer development in animals. Uh, and the the acronym that scientists use for that is scandal. Oh, yeah. Wow, what this a is, better one. This is this is the thing, but yeah. in real life. Yeah, it's it is a horror show especially if you are a salmon. Thankfully, I am not a salmon, so I'm, I feel I feel good. Um, I'm just imagining the salmon doctor's diagnosis of like bad news: you have parasites, and double bad news: it's also a cancer. Yeah, bum, bum, bum. but like a jellyfish cancer. It's a jellyfish cancer. Triple cancer. bad news: it's crawling its way out of you in order to live its own life. <laughs> oh yeah. So all right. So that is a. Okay, so that's kind of an aside that's not important to the story, but I couldn't uh, too bad. Cool, I couldn't not <laughs> tell you about it when I found it. Uh, uh, so, but the, if you're not Hanagaya Shockey, then you do need to breathe. Hanny Shockey. Yeah, if you're not a hand jockey, you, you're going to need to breathe. And, and and I mentioned it before, and Trace, you, you keyed in on the powerhouse of the cell, the mitochondria, right? This this part of, the, of all our cells, this organelle inside of us, needs 
oxygen. So we need to breathe in order to give oxygen to uh, these mitochondria. They make ATP that sort of powers the whole being alive thing that we do. Uh, breathing also is useful for getting rid of things that you don't want. Some of our waste products are, are breathed out carbon dioxide most notably, right? We, we breathe out CO2, um, which mm -hmm. is handy. That's also, interestingly, did you know that's how you lose weight? Like if you work out and you lose weight, where does the weight go? Right. You, it's the You the don't CO2 pee it out and you don't poop it out. You breathe, huh? you breathe it yeah. out. It is this, huh. the carbon in the mass of the, of the mass you're losing is exhaled as carbon dioxide. Huh. Yeah. Cool. Isn't that, isn't that also, interesting? Makes me feel better for like how hard it is to lose weight. It's like, oh yeah, it's easy to like eat a whole bunch, but it's so hard to exhale an equivalent amount of mass. Right. Yeah. How many like exhausted breaths does it take for me to expel a cheeseburger? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's so one of those many. tough questions, but that's not the question that Henry from Singapore asked. No, true. He asked about continuous breathing. And, and like I was mentioning, we, we, we do this oxidative uh, phosphorylation mitochondria breathing thing, right? So we, we wow, take in oxygen. that's a lot of big words. I know. It's expensive word. I, that, I'm getting that use out of that degree. <laughs> I'm, I'm justifying those student loans to this day. But if you look at early animals, right, especially early vertebrates, uh, like our ancestors were, were fishes, right? And they, in order for them to breathe, they don't use lungs like we do. They use gills. And that's handy for them. Uh, they pass water over their gills. And in seawater and, and in general, most freshwater also will have some level of oxygen dissolved in it. And right, it's yeah. as simple as you basically your gills have these very tiny and numerous blood vessels. Water passes by them. If there's more oxygen in the water than there is in the fish blood, then oxygen will follow a chemical gradient. And there you go. Bing, bang, boom. Yeah. Uh, bing bang boom bing bang boom you've got metabolism going uh, <laughs> but the thing is that fish um have a really low metabolism compared to uh compared to us they're also you know they're underwater you may have noticed gills don't work well uh <laughs> when you're not underwater so like the the structure of gills collapses in air um and it doesn't work well for absorbing you know oxygen in seawater is dissolved in water and that's right. fundamentally different than the oxygen in the atmosphere around us so we need some kind of different mechanism to absorb that and it, it, you know hmm. that's where lungs come in mm. i mean i always thought of oxygen as dissolved in air I mean, but I would I kept that to myself until now. But yeah, so you're right because it's not really dissolved. Like that yeah, would I mean, it's not that oxygen is separate by the, the nitrogen air. in the air, right? Like in right. water, yeah. it is. There are there are water uh, molecules around the oxygen that sort of keep it in, suspended in, in, you know, dissolved into solution. And the right. air, you could in a. I mean, it's a. They're both fluids. One is denser, but that's. Right. It's not the same. It's not There's the same. There's so much more oxygen, though, in the air, right? Like oxygen's right. about 20%. By percent, yes. Yeah. But there's just so much less stuff in air in general, right? Like one cubic meter of air has a lot less atoms in it than a cubic meter of seawater. But it's also just hard to get. It's a very different way to access this oxygen. How are you going to get this oxygen into your blood, which is watery stuff, right? You've got to get oxygen to cross from being you really force it a gas to being a dissolved gas in your own blood. And... Uh, and, and, and lungs are what we used to do. Interestingly, lungs are somewhat related to swim bladders. If you're a fan of bony fishes, you may be familiar with the swim bladder, 
which is like a sack uh, inside of a fish that changes. Um, it has in, not air, but something similar to air inside of it, a gas. Uh, and they can use that almost like the inside of a submarine. You know how mm-hmm. people like use, ballast. Yeah, they can yeah. pump water or compressed air in and out of chambers to make a submarine more or less buoyant. Fish, well, bony fishes at least, uh, do this as well. And lungs are thought to be sort of related to the swim bladder and not really closely related to the gills, which I think is interesting. So, like, your lungs are not like a version of fish gills that just decided to move inside and become bags of air. Hmm. They're more closely, but but weirdly, there's actually, uh, you know, so I was digging into this a bit. And scientists don't agree on which came first, the swim bladder or the lung. And there are some that actually say that lungs are older than swim bladders, and swim bladders are a derived form of lung. Um, that's what I had and, heard, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's an, but is, and a swim bladder is thought to be, you know, sort of derived from part of a lung. But there are fish that have actual lungs, like lungy lungs. There's a fish called a lung Lung fish, fish. yeah. Oh, <laughs> Right. Yes. <laughs> the lung fish. We really original. We just put it out. Great headline for that that right. YouTube video of so an animal. The l- lung fishes are actually closer related to us than they are to most of the other fishes out there. They're part of the uh, so-called lobe-finned fishes, and so are you. Uh, this group of fishes <laughs> oh. that have uh, fleshy, uh, bony parts of their fins before they get to that that sort of ray uh, fin end of the fin. And if you actually look at a lungfish, you can see they can sort of move around and they can breathe air. And uh, our ancestors are are thought to have done the same thing. So we can also breathe air. Ideally, we we could breathe air. But when we do it, it is not continuous. As Henry mentioned, uh, our system, we have these bags in our our bodies that we fill with air. When we inhale, uh, gas exchange happens. Oxygen goes into the blood. Carbon dioxide comes out of the blood. And then we have to expel it and refresh it with fresh air. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So, so, you know, that is non-continuous. However, there is a group of land animals that have evolved continuous breathing. They don't have two mouths, but they do have a lung that is constantly having air pushed through it from one, from one end, in one end, and out the other end. And uh, yeah, Julian, you're smiling so big right now. I know no. this one. I know no. this one. I don't want to steal any thunder, but I know this it is one. Everyone's favorite group of extant dinosaurs. Yes, yes, my favorite reptiles. The bird. Yes, my favorite reptile as well, the birds. And actually, you know, this kind of breathing uh, where where birds and birds do it, it's it's so weird. So their lungs don't expand or contract. They're sort of the same size. They have the same volume of stuff in them. Of, of air in them all the time, but they have these air sacs inside of them on either side of their lungs. So they have these air sacs on one side that they'll fill up with air that then, and the, those air sacs, all they are are basically like balloons inside the body of the bird. They don't do gas exchange. They're not switching oxygen and carbon dioxide out. They're just these little balloons inside of a bird. They fill them up with air and then they push that air through the lungs, which do not change size or anything. They just, they're, and the lungs are where we get that gas exchange exchange going and then it, there's another set of air sacs on the other side which will then sort of collect uh, air from the lungs and then expel it out of the front of the bird and it's almost like they have like they oh have to breathe God. in twice to get this cycle through once uh, are you telling me ralph 
Yes. That birds are basically bagpipes. Birds <laughs> are... Yes, birds are Because if, if you know how a bagpipe works, you are blowing into the bag, which you are squeezing under your arm, and the bag is what is powering right. the instrument. But you're just constantly filling the bag with mm. air. Yes. So, like, you breathing, you could do a whole bagpipe where you just have, like, I don't know, a generator pushing air into the bag and not blowing into it. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned this, too, because birds don't have vocal cords the way we do either. You may have noticed that birds can sing very complex songs, and many yeah. birds can even sing more than one note at the same time, just yeah. the way a bagpipe, like a bagpipe does. Yeah. Wait, so are birds bagpipes, are bagpipes dinosaurs? I, I mean... I mean... <laughs> You can't, can't even prove they aren't. I mean, prove to me they're not. Can, but yeah, I mean, we're just asking questions on this podcast. I'm picturing a more quote unquote accurate Jurassic Park a remaster, and they give all the dinosaurs feathers, right? But then they also make the T Rex roar just a bagpipe whale, just like mm. <laughs> it like crushes the little velociraptors, and then it's just like if you listen to the back. The, I feel like the T Rex roar already is a little bagpipey. It does yeah. sound like it's more than one note it at does, the same yeah. time. Yeah. So, yes, in this sense, birds are bagpipe adjacent, at least. <laughs> same family. Same family. Same family. Part of the question, like, can we evolve to breathe continuously? Depending on what you mean by we, you know, you know, land and vertebrates, the tetrapods have done this already. It has mm. been evolved, not with two mouths, as Henry suggested, uh, but, but yes, a continuous breathing. And this actually makes sense. Uh, the birds have a higher metabolism than we do, and especially when they're flying, their need for oxygen is extreme, right? They need an awful lot of oxygen in order to power those extremely large muscles, the breast muscles that are flapping those wings and doing all that intense work. Um, There's also why birds, you'll often see birds eat an awful lot too. Birds are, they burn a lot of gas, you know, and they they need Mm -hmm. a big, like they're like a muscle car or something. Like they have a big intake, a fancy intake system. And uh, so yes, this has been evolved, but not in, you know, evolution doesn't work like, I can't evolve myself to now right. have bird breathing because uh, right. that's just, you know, evolution doesn't work that way. However, it has evolved once in the vertebrates already. And, you know, many millions of years from now, you could. So we can't evolve that way, but perhaps our distant descendants could. Trace. Trace has a question. Trace, why is your hand raised? I would like to know if using CRISPR, we could take genes from these dinosaur slash birds and engineer a future mammal with that breathing system. Could we, the three of us? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not going to stop me. (laughs) Listen, I've got a whole bunch of birds that I've caught (laughs) down at the beach, and we're going to try this thing. (laughs) There's a lot going on there. I think it would be really, really challenging i mean but i wouldn't say it's impossible just uh very 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 difficult to do and also perhaps not a good investment of resources you know (laughs) it would probably take billions of dollars and decades so elon musk will attempt this oh yeah he could do it (laughs) yeah he's gonna try it part of my understanding why this happened with birds is because like the way that our lungs work now of like breathe into these big sacks with these smaller sacks right and then like squeeze all the air out is not terribly efficient in terms of the volume that it takes up like there's these big dead areas right in like the corners of our lungs right. that just and we're air also not doesn't... expelling 
all the air in our lungs every time right? yeah like it's exactly not, there's a yeah. lot of sort of dead air that that sort of mixes around in there but we're not going from a full lung to a completely empty lung to a completely full of fresh air lung every time right but if you're if you're a bird that flies right like if you've got any sort of extra mass that's like because your lungs are bigger because you have to get like this amount of air and deal with the inefficiency <laughs> of like the air in air out lung that you know we have it's it's a disadvantage right you're like you're you're heavier you're going to take more energy to actually get into the air so there's a selective pressure for these other types of lungs like that allows them to gain an advantage but for us like down here on the ground walking around like who cares if we just have a little bit of extra mass you know and and we're not using all that space in our lungs like there's no pressure to get rid of that so no, like we're sure. not going to naturally evolve this more efficient breathing system unless something is pushing us to breathe more efficiently right there's like a selection pressure exactly right although i should mention right like this is, so birds are a kind of theropod dinosaur it is not known exactly when that kind of breathing apparatus showed up. Is that breathing apparatus something that would have also been present in, say, like a sauropod dinosaur or maybe even one of the ornithopod dinosaurs like a, like a stegosaurus or a triceratops? I don't think that is well understood. You, mm-hmm. You've got to wonder, did, you know, the uh, early relative of the dinosaurs, the, the pterosaurs, right? The, the flying reptiles that are not technically dinosaurs, but right. lived in a similar time. Did they have that kind of uh, anatomy? And the thing is, it's soft tissue, right? So for paleontologists, yeah. there's not, as far as really I'm rare. aware, really great fossil record uh, at the moment. That doesn't mean it's impossible. I mean, there have been some soft tissue fossils out there. You know, I, I, what was this? When did that selective pressure happen? We know that the early archosaurs, the group that evolved into dinosaurs and birds, was already bipedal and probably a lot more like go get them, high metabolism mm. running around than maybe some of our ancestors were. But, you know, it's it, it, evolution is complex that way. And it's I, I think it's really, you know, it's a rabbit hole that was fun. Like, the, it's a fun, silly question, but it, it opens up, I think, an interesting rabbit hole that I enjoy going down. And these questions of, you know, how did how did the life around us come to be the way it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. And we also know way more about it than you might guess. Like, if you haven't gone down a paleontology uh, or, uh, like, kind of genetic uh, DNA analysis that people who do phylogeny can do now, like, there's, a, there's an awful lot that we know. And uh, I, I think that's really... It, it, that was one of the more fascinating things. Uh, and that that's sort of the evolution side of this question to me. Like, I went down that way. But that then the other, the other part that was in the text version of the question that was sort of implied, is there a way that we could engineer it? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer to that is also yes. And it's already been done. <gasps> Gasp, yeah. shock, horror. Yes, shock, horror. Uh, all, a medical miracle. It's... <laughs> It's so. Have you ever heard of a heart and lung machine? Yeah, that's oh, heart and lung machine that yeah. does this. So it's not something that you would use to be more athletic, right? But if you yeah, are having attached. major open heart surgery, they have to stop your heart. Like if they replace a valve in your heart, they have to stop it. And normally, stopping your heart is very bad for your health. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Generally yeah. not recommended. So how do they keep your blood from dropping all its oxygen and, and you from, from experiencing immediate death when they do that? They have this machine. Um, it's sort of in pop culture known as a heart and lung machine. It is more uh, professionally known as cardiopulmonary bypass, which 
does what it sounds like it does. It, it bypasses your cardiopulmonary system. Your lungs and heart get bypassed by this machine that both sort of pumps your blood. So they use these big tubes that, that take blood from before your heart and then put it back in after your heart. And in the in-between, it pumps it through this machine that will oxygenate the blood. And actually, it will also sometimes change the temperature of the blood. Uh, when people are going through open heart surgeries, this is, of course, a very challenging environment. The body doesn't like it when you cut open the chest and stop the heart. <laughs> okay, let me write so, that down. Yeah, don't do that. Be careful. You, not, not that you can't do it, but it's, it's tough. It's really hard on the body. So they often will um, sort of induce hypothermia to slow down the body's metabolism and all those systems. So the way one of the ways they do it is they cool the blood down in the heart and lung machine before they put it back so they use your own blood as a coolant fluid wow oh cool i love modern medicine it's yeah. so wild it's wild and this was developed in the 1950s so uh, right. it's modern medicine but it's not that new modern medicine you know, that's uh, but it's like also not something you ago. can do all day you know a heart and lung machine you, well first it's bypassing your whole heart usually your chest is open at this point it's not something you would do if you were trying to run a better marathon um and it's also not something you can do for too long typically you know um surgeons try and keep you under six hours when you're on this machine. Mm. There's all sorts of blood clotting issues that happen. It doesn't do as good a job as your heart and lungs. I think in general, your lungs don't like not having blood flowing through them for that long. It's it's tricky stuff. Um, it's, it's above my pay grade. I am not a, a heart surgeon, believe it or not. Uh, so like, you know, don't, obviously there's, there's, and it's a really interesting topic as well. There's, I mean, it's, a, that's a rabbit hole that's fun to go down. And there are more lung specific versions that are not as commonly used there's they call it just an artificial lung i saw that someone was on one of those for maybe about a month which is quite a long time but that is to bridge you wouldn't again not something you would do to be uh like a superhuman athlete this is something to bridge somebody to a lung transplant that kind of mm. situation so right. could we engineer it the answer is yes but Neither uh, trying to evolve ourselves or engineer ourselves to breathe continuously seemed like a good idea if you just want to get good at sports or something. I feel like... So far. I'm just... So my, my technology optimism is like, look, this was invented in the 1950s. Let's say we put some resources behind it to miniaturize it. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Let's, let's get the, the 200 years from now, the future of a cardiopulmonary bypass is just like, okay, I'm bypassing my heart for this race. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, can you imagine there would be then, like a cyborg Olympics at that point? Yeah. Yeah, you just slap oh, it on wait. your chest, plug it in to well, yourself. I have heard that go. there are some, you know, there are athletes who are who have artificial limbs who actually can outrun most like who could outrun me easily. Yeah. And you know, you got to yeah. maybe artificial heart add that to the list. And yeah. so, oh it, man, it's guys... critical for for life, but you know, breathing isn't that complicated, right? Like if you expose the blood nicely enough to air it sort of chemical gradients do the thing like the hemoglobin in your blood likes oxygen just the right amount and the co2 in your blood isn't even in blood cells it's just dissolved in the blood and it leaves anytime it's exposed it to air that has less co2 in it than it does so you know you know it's I not the one, craziest idea thinking about this i'm glad that we evolved a continuous digestive tract and a in-out breathing system and not the other way around well 
I'm so glad you brought that up, Julian. Let me tell you. <laughs> because Nidarians do not have an all the way through digestive system. Nidarians yep. like that horrifying parasite we mentioned earlier. Uh, but jellyfish and, and corals and things like that, their mouth is also their anus. Yes. Uh, they have a, and it all they, comes they take full food in, circle. They hold, it on, hold on to it for a while till it's not food anymore. And then Break it down, they get rid of it. Through the same door out of their in. mouths. That's wow. right. That could have been us. Henry, glad be glad. Be glad it's a two-way breathing system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine a future where people are just like, hey, man, you turn into the cyborg games this weekend? And you're like, nah, I, I like the natural human sports. Oh, you're snob. Like, not as fast. They don't hit as hard. Not, not as, as cool. cool. That's basically non-football fans listening to American football now. They're just like, oh, no, they don't go as fast. They don't hit as hard. Mm-hmm. Not into it. So there's definitely going to be an audience for like cyborg sports. Oh, and I want I want them to be like if it's stuff like a foot race, I would love to see a normal human versus cyborg man. You know, just like, don't worry, actually it'll be on, of, it'll I be want, on Fox. I it want would, that that's for a, the that's regular a Fox Olympics too. Actually, I'd love to see just like what does somebody who is made out of Jello and and does sits on the uh, look googling weird stuff all the time. What do they? How do they do? in a sprint against Usain Bolt. <laughs> the normal man, Honestly, yeah. I love that meme of like, yeah. every one Olympics there guy. should just be one average person <laughs> just to see how fast and how strong all these people are. How thro- how far did they throw the javelin? Eight meters. Yeah. 60! <laughs> For all you out there who's, who's sitting on your couch going, I could do that. Here you go. Here's your chance. Sign up. Yeah. Amazing. I love it. All right, with that, Thank you, Henry, for your question. Let's take another break and come back for Julian's question. All right, welcome back, everybody. If you haven't been paying attention, we answer silly questions with science. That's pretty much the pithiest I could be about this podcast. (laughs) Nailed it. Good pith. We've answered two questions already uh, about time and about uh, evolving ourselves to breathe continuously and or engineering. Um, and we have uh, one more question to go. So Julian, what was your question? So the question I tackled, as is tradition, when we have a guest, uh, we have them ask a question and then one of us does our best to actually answer it. And so this question comes from Ralph, mm-hmm. kind of. So Ralph, <gasps> what was your question? Okay, so it does come from me, but it is inspired by by the by your show. It, so you oh. did an episode earlier, classic episode, one of my top twenty favorites. Uh, yeah, ep seven, episode seven. You answered the question, "What is the pointiest thing?" And that got my wheels turning. Uh, and I wanted to ask now. So now that we know what the pointiest thing is, what is the least pointy thing? You know, wow. Ralph. I knew I liked you. I knew (laughs) from our first phone call where we got to know each other and we discovered we were both hockey fans. Go Pens, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Go my bottom-dwelling San Jose Sharks. You want to talk about a real parasite on the league? Go my team. Okay, so, but the moment you asked this question, I about died because, as it turned out, buried deep in our list of questions, I, possibly slightly drunk, added... Right after we did the what is pointiest episode, I added what is the unpointiest thing. Yes. <laughs> so it's I appreciate floating that, around in there that Ralph asked this, but yeah. it's also kind of my own question, which feels like cheating, but I'm going to get to do it anyway because Ralph asked it. So it's technically OK for me to answer. But here's the thing is how 
where do you even start? Right. Like, yeah. When I did the pointiest thing episode, it was actually kind of a pain to define pointiness, if that makes sense. Hmm. Like, I I found sources. First of all, everything I looked up wanted to tell me about the sharpest thing, you know. And there's definitions of that that involve, like, the radius of the cutting edge and then the wedge angle of the blade and blah, 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 blah. And eventually I just said, like, okay, I'm just going to go with, like, the narrowest a point can be in terms of like molecular size and found this, right. uh, you know, articles about a tungsten nano needle, right? Where the tip had been basically chemically whittled down to a single string of atoms, right? But for all the details, go listen to episode seven. Episode seven. Yeah. But what's the opposite of that? Like where right. do do we talk about like, something that's yeah smooth is a good one well do we talk about like like, yeah pointy things have to be solid right okay it can't right you can't have a pointy gas but is the same true well here's the thing what's the the opposite of pointy like that's really what is that what we're trying to answer what's the what 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 the opposite of pointy is kind Mm -hmm. of yes but ralph about saying you can't have a pointy gas i mean you sure about that you sure about that? Freak out over here. Yeah, right. No, my brain like, is I'm, my well, brain. You can certainly seemingly have a pointy liquid, right? Like I've seen like a water jet cutter that seems very pointy. Uh, well, there's is there's plasma cutters. You there's can have plasma. high pressure. Yeah, absolutely. In metalworking, you have basically a jet of gas that you ionize as it comes out of the nozzle and turn it into right. plasma and mm-hmm. concentrate it, and it just cuts through metal like butter. But is cutting pointiness? Well, right? maybe like piercing directly nano through. needle probably couldn't cut through a piece Anything. of sheet steel. No. Cut through paper. <laughs> a piece of sheet. Yeah. The big, I mean, the big old you, piece could, of sheet. you could poke with it, though, right? But you can poke if you just don't move the plasma cutter, right? Then you're just piercing. Does that count as being pointy? I, I think know. no. I feel like no, a plasma cutter is not pointy. Okay. Yeah, okay. I feel like it might not be. It okay. might be more melty. It's <laughs> Uh, the thing is, it's really just punching through this metal, right. though, right? Like, it's it, yeah. uh, to me, it sounds like piercing. So I'm not even going to say that, like, a gas is or is not pointy because, you know, in the right circumstances, you could make gas pointy or, like you said, liquid pointy, right, if you've got a jet of water. So I'm not going to focus on that. I'm, I, I, you know, I get to make the rules here because... It's arbitrary. We're defining what is it is pointy, right? True. But I'm with you on, I think it should be something solid, right? I'm with cool. you on that. Got it. Since the tungsten nanometer is solid and it was human made, there's also that aspect, right? Because we could start talking about really abstract things, right? Like, hmm. what's the opposite of pointy? Nothing. And I mean that in a literal Th- sense. Yeah, exactly. But like uh. empty space devoid of any matter, right? Would you say that's pointy sure. or not pointy or even a thing? Whoa. I don't know. It kind of gets a bit mind bending. And worse, and here's a fun little side alley that we can go down. There's no such thing as nothing. True. So, well, uh, is quantum foam pointy? Oh, see, there you go, Ralph. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's a great question. Probably not. I mean, I don't think you can use anything <laughs> with quantum foam. But for those listening who uh, aren't, you know, big, big old nerds like us, I'll tell you about quantum foam a little bit. So if you were to take some volume, right, and just 
pump all of the matter out of it, like get a perfect vacuum and shield it from any energy and think that you have nothing inside, you still wouldn't have nothing. If you zoomed in to like a quantum scale, you would see what some scientists describe as like a foam where these virtual particles come in and out of existence. And it might be a little confusing to think of them as actual particles. You know, we describe them that way, but all particles are are just like disturbances in fields, right? Like an elect- a photon is a disturbance in the electric field and the magnetic field that permeates the entire universe, right? So these little fluctuations and variations that just stem from the nature of, you know, the quantum world being unpredictable and weird mean that tiny little pockets of disturbances come in and out of existence constantly, and we call those virtual particles. And they are always going to be there, even if you think you've gotten rid of every single piece of matter and shield it completely from energy. It's just not possible to have nothing. Nothing. Right. Wow. So, so in, nothing. In, in our universe. In our universe. So in a well, real I, way, I, nothing is impossible, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Put wow. that on a t-shirt, like with the full <laughs> explanation on, on the back. Poster. Nothing is impossible. And then on the back. So if you zoom in, there's quantum foam. <laughs> have to really it's really, really read the fine yeah, print yeah. it is a good one though it's good good piece of motivation um so i didn't i didn't like that at all i thought like it was starting to kind of get away from me and again i came back to okay let's try and find something human made that is the opposite of pointy right Mm-hmm. And Trace, you brought up this idea, like, what if it's really smooth? I like that. Super right? smooth. What if I you like had that. something that was incredibly smooth? And there are examples of very, very smooth things that we've created <gasps> for various <gasps> reasons. Like in 2008, scientists in Madrid created the smoothest mirror ever. They took oh, cool. a, a wafer of silicon that was uh, 50 microns thick, and then they covered it with a layer of lead that was just one to two nanometers thick. And they did this at like minus 133 Celsius, like very cold. And I, I have no idea how <laughs> how to describe how it works because the scientists were just basically like, yeah, and then some magic happens and it smooths out the lead. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not very helpful or a very scientific explanation. But basically they say like these quantum forces between the lead and the silicon stretched the lead into a very fine, smooth surface where it's only across the whole surface, like a couple atoms variation in height. And most of it, like 94% of it is uniform height. So wow. a very, very, very smooth mirror. Uh, so, the per- wow. Yeah. The purpose of this mirror, it's funny. The tungsten nano needle like was... The, the Florida of mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> Just flat as far the as the eye can flat. see. Um, <laughs> the tungsten nano needle was created in order to image like incredibly small objects like actual atoms and it, funny enough this mirror was created uh with the goal of using it for atomic microscopy you've heard of electron microscopes where that you shoot a beam of electrons at an object and because we talked about all particles are really waves uh the wavelength of electrons is much smaller than that of the wavelengths of light of visible light so you can get much finer resolution when they bounce off an object and, you know, into some sort of receiver and you basically disentangle those images, right? You can get really, really, really fine details from electron microscopes. 
But a problem with it is you have to shoot this beam of electrons at whatever you're trying to sample. And a lot of times it's like something delicate, like a biological sample. And I hate getting you shot can, by beams of electrons. It's <laughs> uh, really ruins my day. And yeah, you can damage that sample. So the thinking with these atomic uh, microscopes that these scientists were trying to develop is you'll shoot larger atoms, but with less energy at whatever it is you're trying to image. And so <clears throat> you won't actually destroy the sample, but it's got to bounce off of this mirror like once it goes through your sample and go to a receiver. So they needed something really, really smooth to reflect these atoms. So that's one candidate. Mm. But you could so also... very, very smooth mirror. Very candidate smooth one. mirror. Candidate one. You could also have, say, a very perfectly smooth round object. Ooh, that does seem somehow mm. less pointy than less... a smooth flat object. Weird, Because the flat right? object has edges. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's got a edge but if you've got something very spherical right there's no there's no edge to speak of and i thought about like okay what if we did this like ooh, the earth you know they always say if if the earth was like shrunk down to the size of a cue ball like the variances on the surface of the earth like the highest mountains and the lowest you know bottom of the ocean would be like less than the variations on a cue ball but i've Hmm. found something that when scaled up or down is even smoother than than the earth would be with all its mountains and valleys and whatnot and it was funny enough this episode is kind of weirdly very um (laughs) well well packaged and fitting very nicely it was a sphere that scientists created in order to establish what a kilogram <gasps> is. I've you. Oh, my. Yes. 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 The kilogram. The I kilogram. Know, sphere. That's a beautiful sphere. It right. is beautiful. It is. Oh, I've it, wanted to hold it for so long just because it would be like, <laughs> is this what it feels like to hold perfection? Yeah. I mean, that was the goal, right? So when the the French were coming up with all of these units of standardized measurement, that's how you say it. That's the correct way. They came up with all these beautifully elegant different measurements and ways to interrelate them to each other. And over time, we have found mathematical ways of describing all of them, except for, for a long time, the kilogram, right? And fun little side note about the kilogram, originally... Uh, it was the standard unit, SI unit for mass was going to be the grave based on like gravitas, but it sounded too mm. much like a French title of nobility. So they changed it to gram, right? And like a thousand, one thousandth of a grave. And then they said, okay, well, it's still kind of a pain to work with just grams. So the kilogram will be the standard yeah. SI unit for mass. And that's why kilogram is the only one of all the standard SI units that has a prefix of kilo. Because hmm. they didn't want to invoke French nobility because they were right in revolutionary times. Yeah. Yeah. Funny how, hmm. how politics still actually kind of intermingles with the history of things. You might not think about it, but that's that's why kilogram is like the standard. Okay. So the difficulty with the kilogram is they basically just needed a sample of a kilogram to be the definitive kilogram. They just made a weight and they pointed at it and they said, this is a kilogram. This this thing weighs exactly one kilogram. 
But objects are funny in that, like, if you store them yeah. at different temperatures or, you know, different processes like rust occur and the, the material if you touch degrades. Them. Yeah, if you add a fingerprint, you'll change the value of a kilogram, right? So they built, like, they, they cast identical replicas of the kilogram when they made the definitive kilogram and they stored them in different countries so those countries could have, like, a reference point for a kilogram. They were all supposed to be in the same conditions, but, like, over time, the values of all these things diverged from each other. And I feel like this is like the Lord of the Rings, but with the metric system. You know, like, <laughs> there's, like, there's all these right. different kilograms were made, but then there's like one kilogram to rule them to all. To rule them all. Them all. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Don't drop it in the fire, though, because then it'll change. It's <laughs> in, in a basement in France. And there's so- just one French guy named Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> he just holds on to it. Matricious. <laughs> Like Mordor does sound French, right? Mm. Like, yeah, kind of does. Mm. And you would destroy this kilogram by (laughs) casting it into a fire, into the into the lava to melt it, and therefore destroy all the units of weights. And I feel like Paris of the 1790s probably resembled Mount Doom in many ways also. Maybe. You know, the French Revolution was pretty rough from what I understand. I wasn't there, but... It's hard to (laughs) overthrow the people who live down the street. (laughs) I've never tried. I've never tried either. I have, but I was repelled. But I'll try again. (laughs) So about a decade ago, though, they were like, okay, instead of this old weight from 200 years ago, now with modern machining and science and... our ability to craft very precise objects. What if we made a sphere as perfect as we can make it out of silicon 28 atoms and we ground it really, really smooth into a, a really fine sphere. And then because we can calculate the volume of a sphere and we know the density of silicon atoms, we can calculate how many atoms there are in this sphere. And then we'll say this many silicon atoms equals one kilogram, definitively. And that's it. So they ground this sphere down. They took this Sounds chunk of perfect. silicon atoms and just mm-hmm. kept polishing that thing over and over and over wow. until it was so smooth. In mathy terms, right, it had a roundness delta, delta being change, of less than 50 nanometers. Now, that's probably wow. meaningless to everybody listening. Yeah, that is. So to put it in the if Earth were the size of this thing or if this were the size of Earth like perspective, if you were to scale this ball of silicon atoms up to the size of the Earth, the difference in elevation between the lowest low and the highest peak would be 14 meters. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So it just like, oh, you want to go on a hike up a mountain? And it's just like... 50 like feet later, you're like, we've done feet, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm exhausted. It's so high up here. So the it's elevation. smoother than Florida then. It Even is. smoother than Florida. Even smoother than Floridia. Wow. Right. That, I think, great candidate for being the least Wait, there's something thing. that's less pointy than a ball that would just, if you touched it, you'd go, <sighs> In my unprofessional opinion, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. When it's less pointy. Well. I ran out of air. If you think. Well, you got to have the one-way breathing. If only okay. I could have continuously been breathing. <laughs> oh, dang it. Henry. Okay. Unfortunately, this involves a bit of math and geometry. Oh, good. Perfect. But basically, if you define a point, right, like something with a positive curvature, it from that point, everything curves away from it in the same direction right? 
So even okay. though a sphere has no edges, right? Like any point on it, there's a positive curvature because everything's curving away from it the mm. same way. Any direction you choose, you know, you'll bend the same way away from it. You can right. have a negative curvature of a shape if when you walk in one direction, you know, it's like you're walking, let's say, downhill from the point you started at. But from that same starting point, if you turn 90 degrees and started walking, you would go uphill. That in mathematics is a negative curvature. Basically, a saddle shape. So, oh, like a Pringle. Like, like a Pringle. Exactly. Exactly. The like a delicious Pringle. That's a perfect, perfect uh, analogy. So, I think, in my humble opinion, the least pointy thing needs to be something that humans have made, something that has a negative curvature to be the opposite of pointy, and I think it should just generally be large because it should be difficult to actually use it for piercing anything, you know? Like, maybe maybe a Pringle, I don't know, edge of a Pringle, you could do it? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely, I've crunched a Pringle and had it kind of poke the roof of my mouth if I'm a little aggressive with it, you know? That feels pointy. Ra but also since Ralph is here, and Ralph likes hockey and I like hockey and he'll appreciate this. I decided I'm I'm ready to crown the least pointy object in the universe or the most pointless thing in the universe. And that is the Saddle Dome in Calgary where the Calgary Flames play. <laughs> it's a hockey arena with a roof shaped like a saddle. <laughs> So it's got a negative curvature. It's obviously built by humans, and it's very large, so it would be difficult to actually penetrate anything with it. Right. And this, and it's pointless to be a Flames fan. So that Yeah, it is very pointless because you can have a great season and still lose the most goals by one game and miss the playoffs, and it's d disappointing. So there you have it, Ralph. I hope I, I answered your question. That was better than I could ever have imagined. <laughs> Yeah, the most have, pointless thing. I have a vague memory that the universe might be saddle-shaped because of yes. negative curvature. Yeah, uh, you know, I almost got into this rabbit hole of, like, could you call the universe the least pointy thing? And then, like, right. should we redefine my answer from episode seven as the most pointy thing being a black hole because it's a singularity? But it all just felt yeah. too... Too esoteric. Exactly. Um, yeah. But yes, there are the, you know, ideas that the universe could be a closed universe, which would basically be a giant Bubble. ball. And yeah. the idea is, you know, if gravity were uh, to win out and kind of shape the universe into this curve shape, you could theoretically start at one point, travel in a straight line and still end up where you started. Uh, then there is the negative uh, curvature universe of an idea open universe yeah. exactly and that's like if you were to travel if two say rocket ships were to travel parallel to each other because of the negative curvature they would actually split off and move right. away from each other but what we seem to live in is a flat universe which is neither it's just like if you if two things travel in a straight line parallel they don't they, get closer together they don't yep. get further apart yep and they at least don't not that end we up can back tell. where they start not that we can tell based on the scale of our universe and how we can measure it. But the the flat. evidence that we've collected points to us living in a flat universe. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, also maybe answer to your question, the, the, the universe pointy thing, the universe itself. But that could be, you know, <laughs> I, but then the universe also contains a tungsten. The most pointy thing. I know. <laughs> I know. But so, on average, 
if you average out the universe <laughs> yeah mm. huh I, I like the Calgary answer. I think that's the I best. Mean, yeah, that one's pretty good. <laughs> this, this is, these are my favorite kind of questions, listeners, just so you know. Just because it's like there's not really a right answer or a wrong answer. It's more just like let's explore this. Similar, yeah. Ralph, your question too. It's just like let's – I don't know. Let's figure it out. That's just the best. Yeah. I love questions like How that. can I use this as a vehicle for other fun science learning? <laughs> Yeah, because if you think about it, even a sphere that is perfectly smooth and the size of a kilogram, you know, like a cannonball or like a small, you can hold it in your hands. If you were, I don't know, a giant and stepped on it, it would feel pointy like a Lego piece. <laughs> you know, it would feel like like Princess and the Pea kind of situation. It's oh, going to yeah. feel like a lump, which is pointy because it has some curvature. So unless you had something perfectly smooth and so flat that it reached the edge of the universe that would be like the least pointy thing but i feel like the universe isn't a solid what's the biggest what is the biggest solid sphere in the universe Mm. Mm. i mean earth is pretty big would you call it earth is the biggest by solid yeah i mean the the boundary is not defined by gas plasma or liquid and it is full of right. densely packed atoms and not like uh, yeah. dark matter or something right so like in our solar system the earth is the largest rocky body that right is, and uh, and once you get bigger than a certain size they're all spherical right like right. hydrostatic uh equilibrium and ours is smoother because of our atmospheric processes than the ones without atmospheric we got like, all sorts erosion. of erosion going on here you know mars is less smooth than we are in some ways because of its large mountains and big chasms. Oh, Olympus Mons. Yeah, that's a big... Yeah, that's big. But it's not that pointy. You know, if you were to stand on it, you know, it's like, it's also really wide. It's like the size of But then it's, what do you mean by pointy and the scale of pointy? Like pointy to a human? Right. Pointy to a planet? Pointy to a star? Because something that's pointy pointy to a star, because like you can't even poke a hole in a star. Like if you... you, Or can you? you. (laughs) Uh, I can't. I can't. <laughs> Anyways, this was fun. <laughs> thank you for your question, Henry. And thank you for your question, Ralph. Thank, thank you for answering them. Thank you yes. for having me along. This is a, a, a ridiculous and hilarious and fun time. I appreciate I'm it. I'm so glad. Yeah. It's good to yeah have thanks you. for being here, Ralph. Yeah, Ralph, Ralph, where can people uh, find you and follow you if they want to learn more about you after this podcast? Well, the biggest thing I do is I'm the writer and producer for Practical Engineering, which is a uh, YouTube channel hosted by my good friend and boss, Grady Hillhouse. And it is all about uh, the engineered world, um, you know, whether it's dams or bridges or trains or, you know, sort of some of the fundamentals about how engineering works. But it's for anybody. It's fun. It's curious. Um, and then, I don't know, you can find me on like social media things I'm on. Instagram is just Ralph Crew. Uh, I do have a at the moment dormant my own little YouTube channel called Isn't That Something? Which I love I, it. If I ever get enough time to 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 do a, a, my own channel again, I'll go back to it. It was super fun. Uh, but yeah, those are those are good places to start. But yeah, my my the thing I'm most proud of that I get to work on um, in my full time gig is practical engineering. And uh, if if somehow you're not already a fan of it, if you're a fan of this show, I feel like the curiosity gap uh, that we that we get to explore there is is super fun. I think you'll like it. Awesome. Great. Thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate you 
so, so much. Please leave a review for That's Absurd. Please elaborate wherever you are listening. Or, you know, you can star or you can write something. That would be great. And if you do, let us know. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll send you a sticker or something if you if you tell us. Tell your friends about the show. Share the show on your socials. You can tag us. We're on threads and in Facebook and Instagram at That's Absurd Show. And shout out to our Nebula audience. We like seeing you uh, submit your questions. It's so awesome whenever you tell us that you are a Nebula supporter. Because if you listen on Nebula we get support from that as well. So if y'all want to... I am actually a big fan of Nebula too because that is also where you can find practical engineering. It's so good. There's so many smart, great shows on Nebula. Yeah, we're Nebula cousins already. I love that. So shout out to them. Thanks for that. You support the show by that. If you haven't joined Nebula, you can. And if you're listening on Nebula now, I'm sorry that this sort of became an ad for Nebula. I apologize. But (laughs) too bad for that. I hope you love it, too. So if you want to submit a question for a future episode, go to thatsabsurdshow.com slash ask. Or you can look down in the show notes here and just click on the link in the description. Um, And, you know, you can also do that to follow the show, share the show with your friends, or again, leave us a review. So thanks for that so, so much. We will see you in two weeks with another episode of That's Absurd. Please elaborate. And in the meantime, you know, happy new year and stuff, even though time is meaningless and nothing is smooth and (laughs) we cannot continuously breathe forever, unfortunately, for everyone. Nailed it. 